the sovereignty of God. It's one of those big topics that so often dominates our theological conversations with other Christians. What does the Bible actually teach about God's sovereignty? How extensive is it? What about evil and suffering? And what about free will? In our interview today, I'm talking with Paul David Tripp, a best-selling author, a former pastor, and the founder of Paul Tripp Ministries. His newest book is called, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me again today. I think this is our fifth interview together for the Crossway Podcast. Well, I, I love doing these with you. It's, it's like a, a reunion now. <laughs> it is. It is. One of these days we'll get to do it in person. Yeah. Uh, it's been, I think our first one was, but since then it's all been remote. Mm. Uh, so over the last couple of years, we've talked about a few really important topics for the Christian life. We've talked about parenting in light of the gospel. We've talked about the church's leadership crisis. Uh, we've talked about marriage and how God designed it to reflect uh, something really significant for us. Uh, and today I'm excited to talk about yet another really foundational topic for our lives as believers, and that's the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Uh, and it, it's one of those doctrines that probably most Christians have thought about at least a little bit. Uh, and it's obviously a doctrine that is sometimes pretty controversial uh, for some Christians. So I wonder if you can just get us started. How would you explain this doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, to a new believer? So what Scripture teaches that sitting on the throne of the universe is one of incalculable wisdom, power, love, and grace. And um, he, his rule is so utterly complete that in Jonah, we are actually told that God commands a single worm to do what he wants it to do. I mean, th think of that. Think that God's rule is that extensive. I, I that passage always makes me smile because I think, how many billion worms are there? Uh, so that's the way that the Bible presents the world that we live in. Now, that just scratches against the grain of our scientific, mechanical way of thinking about life. The The Bible doesn't say that life is just runs mechanically by a set of natural laws. But there's a person who is directing and controlling the world. And what makes that wonderful is this person is holy in every way, good in every way, loving in every way. The definition of wisdom has unlimited infinite power. And, and so rather than that doctrine um, making us afraid or being the source of great debate, it ought to first hmm. just give us rest of heart. I mean, think of how small your sovereignty and my sovereignty is. I lack so much sovereignty, I lose my keys. 
so I can't even control a little set of inanimate objects, let alone control my, my life or my relationships or the circumstances around me. So I think that's very important. I, I want to say something else here, that the way that sovereignty is presented in Scripture, again, is counterintuitive. Yeah, it's, it's just such a, a beautiful thing to consider. Yeah, and I, I want to explore some of those implications for how we live our lives and, and the, the ways that we think about uh, the things that happen to us and in, in front of us as we live. Uh, but maybe looking a little bit more at those passages, I think one response could be to say that Jonah example would be, well, yeah, that worm in that case, a small little worm, God was sovereign over that one, and that was a special case. That was, that was God using that one worm in a very unique way uh, to do something there. But that's, we shouldn't necessarily generalize that. That generally speaking, God's not, God's not that involved down to the details. Um, are there other passages of Scripture that would speak to that kind of thought and that would maybe push against that? Well, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's God controlling storms. God controlling uh, the move of history. He rules over the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth, and no one can stop his hand or say, what have you done? Uh, so there's, there's everything from grand historical sweep of history to f- big things that happen in physical nature, to my life, to little creatures, uh, the Bible says the birds don't die without the Lord knowing. Uh, in North America, there are three billion birds die a day. Hmm. I mean, think of what we're talking about here. So yeah. the, the scripture really covers the range of God's involvement with the world that he made from huge, big, uh, cataclysmic things to things for us that would be almost unnoticeable, mm, and yeah. and you can't you can't read scripture. Uh, I, this is so important to say and avoid the sovereignty of God. Can I give you a personal experience? When my brother Ted first presented me this, the sovereignty of God, it made me so angry. I took off my shoe and threw it at him, <laughs> and he said. Okay, Paul, I want to challenge you to do something. Get a cheap paperback Bible and a yellow marker. And over the next several months, read your Bible through and mark every time there's something about God's, God's authority, God's sovereignty, God's control. By the end of the summer, my Bible was yellow. Hmm. And it changed my life. So, so many sincere Christians would probably be, even today, would be where you were at, maybe when you first started talking to Ted. They'd be uncomfortable. They might even be angry with the thought uh, of God's sovereignty being described the way that you just described it. Uh, maybe it doesn't fit with their understanding of who God is and how he, he works in the world. And so what did that process actually of your mind changing? Was there a, an intellectual change that happened in your mind as you read scripture? But did that kind of precede an emotional change or like this, you know, a, a more intuitive sense of like, this feels wrong. This doesn't feel like it should be. 
I think it was, I think it was, it was hard, but um, I'd already, I was already at the place in my life uh, where I determined I wanted to let scripture interpret uh, my identity, the way I thought about life, who I think God is. And so uh, I was, I was willing to be persuaded by the uh, theology that was exposed there as I read through my Bible. Mm, yeah. Uh, why do you think it is that this doctrine in particular and what Scripture teaches about God's sovereignty can often be so maybe counterintuitive for many Christians, uh, sincere believers, or, or maybe strike them at least initially as quite... Uh, distasteful even. Okay, I, I think there are two reasons. I think that's really a, a wonderful question. I think the first is that our, insti- our instincts are not to surrender or trust the control of another. Uh, Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Jesus came so those who live would no longer live for themselves. The DNA of sin is selfishness. That's me in the center of my world. My wants, my needs, my feelings, my plan, my will. That's the inertia of sin in all of our hearts. Uh, If you're a parent, you've never had one of your children come to you and say, Mom, Dad, if you could just take more greater control of my life, I'd be so happy. (laughs) Just, just give me more commands. You exercise more authority and give me less choice, and that would just be wonderful. No, no child has ever said that. But a child will fight your control because that instinct is built in him. It's called, it's called sin. So, I think, I think that it is this, this doctrine is counterintuitive. It, it takes us places we would never naturally, naturally go. I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing is a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. People say then if if God is absolutely sovereign, then I'm just a robot. Hmm. And I lose choice and I lose responsibility. That's not actually true at all because I'm going to make a statement and then explain it. God accomplishes his sovereign plan through the true validity of the secondary agent. In other words... That, that's, a, that's a mouthful right yes. there. In, in other words, the way he accomplishes his sovereign plan is through the vehicle of my decisions and my choices. It's not either or, it's both and. Uh, there's this place where Paul is preaching in Acts, and it says... The Gentiles heard the word of the Lord, and they were glad, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, isn't that interesting? It, it was, there's all kinds of human activity there. Paul had to preach. People had to be willing to listen. They had to open their hearts. They had to be glad at the end. But all of that was God working his plan. I never wake up in the morning and my arm goes to a shirt I don't want to wear and I'm trying to pull back my arm and no, my arm's going to... It never happens that way. Nobody actually has the experience of robotics in their life. Hmm. 
because that's not the way God runs his world. So it's never, is God sovereign or am I responsible? It's that the means by which God has decided to rule his world is to give you a will and give you valid choices and critical moments of decision. Those are all all part of God's expediting of his sovereignty. And that's just a, that's just a, a, just a, radically different way than most people think of God's sovereignty. So, so you're kind of saying then that we have the freedom to choose, and we are choosing things, and, and yet God is exercising his sovereignty through those choices that we are making. But I guess I, I wonder if someone might come back and say, I still don't understand then how we can be responsible for that choice, how we can be held morally responsible, responsible, ethically responsible for the choices that we make when ultimately they are still Uh, under God's control. Because the mystery of God's sovereignty is you have never in your life, let's say this as an adult, it may not be true of of children, but you have not been forced into choices. They're your choices. You made them. If if you're honest about your choices as a grown-up human being, they're the result of your desires. They're the result of your thinking. They're followed by planning. They're followed by actual action. You can't look at any of that and, and rationally argue, I had no choice. Because you, you, you don't ever have that experience of being pulled in directions you don't actually want to go in. Hmm. Yeah. So then related to this is um, a concern that maybe many Christians wrestle with, uh, and it relates to how God's sovereignty then uh, makes him potentially the, the author of sin. That, that's a concern that people have. That's a a charge that many people would levy against someone who would hold to God's absolute sovereignty over all things. How do you think about that that type of charge? Well, I I think the first thing you you have to to do, and I I attempt to do this in in Do You Believe that the book where I talk about these doctrines is you can't ever hold one doctrine by itself because if you do that then you're left with these questions you can't answer. Mm. So if, if the doctrine of God's holiness is not one of his separate characteristics, but is a, a, a some definition of all his characteristics, so he's holy in, in sovereignty, he's holy in mercy, he's holy as a righteous judge, then it's impossible for God being perfectly holy than to participate in his sovereignty in whatever would be evil. It can't happen. It's, it's, it's apart from his nature. Um, you are never going to function as an aquatic animal. You don't have that capability of doing that. And so I have to, I have to take uh, all that the Bible tells me that God is and put that together to understand anything that the Bible says God is. Can I say that again? I have to take all that God, the Bible says about what God is to help me understand any one thing the Bible says about who God is. Does that make sense? Mm, And so all those other things define for me 
this, this one. And so the Bible would say, God will never tempt me to do evil. It's impossible for that to happen because it's impossible for God to do evil. Hmm. It seems like that is often at the core of uh, some of our struggles with, with this doctrine and maybe other doctrines is we do, we do kind of hold them in this, uh, we hold them detached. We, we think about them detached from the other things that Scripture reveals about God and don't let those things inform how we understand uh, this doctrine. Yeah, and, and, and so you, you take God, God's position as the judge of all things. Well, you can't hold that without the theology of his boundless love, his mercy and his grace. These things all, all, are, all are held together. I'm, I'm not any one thing. I'm a collection of things. And when you get to know the interweaving of all those things, you, you actually get to know Paul Tripp. In the same way, you don't know God from uh, a single viewpoint of who God is. You have to hold this theology together. Mm. Well, you mentioned the word mystery a minute ago, uh, saying that there is a level uh, of mystery here, understanding how some of these things can hold together. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to how we strike a balance. It seems like on one hand, there are some Christians who might be tempted towards uh, jumping right to mystery immediately and, and kind of saying, this is all a mystery, we can't understand it, and maybe the end result is they actually say less about God's sovereignty than Scripture itself even says. And then on the other hand, there might be Christians who who never want to acknowledge any mystery here, and their temptation is they actually try to overdefine it, overly systematize it in a way that leads them to say more than what Scripture actually says. So how do you hold that intention and, and walk that line of, of not doing either of those two things? It's the dividing line is absolutely the dividing line between God's revealed will, what he's told me in his word, and God's secret will, that's the way he's ruling his world that he hasn't revealed to me. And I, I say kind of humorously over and over again, I, I think I've said this a thousand times, God's secret will is called a secret will because it's secret. <laughs> so I'm not held responsible for figuring out that secret will. In fact, it's dangerous to try to do that because God is, has chosen in his infinite wisdom not to reveal those things to me. But I'm responsible to understand, receive with an open, submissive heart his revealed will. So if there are things on the page that God has revealed about himself and I don't know it, that's my responsibility. I've been lazy, I've been unhearing, I've been uncaring, or I've been rebellious, but my responsibility is to know what God has revealed to me, because he revealed it to me out of generosity of love, mm. because I would know who I am and how to live apart from it. Think when, think when uh, Israel is redeemed out of slavery. What's the very first thing God does? He drops them out Sinai, because... These people don't know who they are. They don't know what life is about. They don't know how to live. Uh, that given a law is just wonderful, father-like love. I, wanna, I want you to thrive, and here's the way to thrive. And so that gift of God's word is a beautiful thing, and I want to get to know it. But 
Rest is not found in my, me trying to figure out God's secret will. Rest is found in trusting the one who holds all those things in his hand mm. and has told me I'm loving, I'm good, I'm faithful, I'm patient, I'm slow to anger, I abound in mercy. Mm. In your book, you you explain what you call a life tool that you develop to help help people to keep that in mind, that, that we have a focus on the revealed will of God and, and need to, in some way, uh, not worry as much about this secret will. And I wonder if you could walk us through what that tool is that you developed and how that can be helpful. Yeah, I developed uh, two circles. Uh, the, the inner circle is... I call the circle of responsibility. The outer larger circle is called the circle of concern. The circle of responsibility are things that God has given to me to do. These are things that are revealed in scripture that are my job description as a child of God. And the only proper choice is to submit and obey. That's this one of wisdom and love who's told me best how to live. And so that, that circle would correspond to God's revealed will. Yep. There's an outer circle of all kinds of things that are concerned to me. Uh, the weather is a concern to me. Uh, global government is a concern to me. Uh, the health of my, my children is a concern to me. But none of those things live under my control. Uh, you know, I've, I've had parents say to me, if this is the last thing I do, I'll get my children to believe. Well, you can be a good and faithful child, and you can act righteously toward your children, but if they don't tra transact with God, they won't believe. And you can't, you can't do that for them. So... I focus on that inner circle of responsibility. That's what shapes my everyday living. I have the circle of concern. I will always carry these, these burdens, but I entrust them to God. Because the Bible tells me he rules that outer circle with unstoppable authority, infinite power, and glorious wisdom. And so... I don't have to live out there in worry and fear and anxiety because I believe that outer circle is in good hands. I obey and I entrust. And, and that really is, is a summary of the Christian life. Mm. Yeah, you, you write in your book, you have this amazing quote that really um, stuck out to me. Much of our regular anxiety, worry, fear, and discouragement is the result of thinking that when things are out of our control, then they are out of control. Uh, I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more for us. How does um, our understanding of God's sovereignty or our misunderstanding of his sovereignty impact how we feel about our world? Isn't it healthy to wake up every morning with these two thoughts? First, the humility 
that I would say, there are many things that touch me that are not under my control. They're out of my control. Uh, you would not want to live with a person who thought that they can control everything. Hmm. So that's a, that's, a, that's a spiritually healthy thing to confess. But balanced with, but that does not mean my life or my world is out of control. Because... For many people, if they would say the first thing, what would follow was massive anxiety. Oh, no. There's X, Y, and Z that are out of my control. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And the Bible says, no, no, no. Remember that what is out of your control is under the control of one who loves, loves you. I love... In Ephesians, where it says of, of Christ, he rules over all things for the sake of his church. I mean, how beautiful is that? It's not only that the Lord rules, but he rules for the sake of his children. So that it's, it's actually a theology there. I don't think I use this term in the book of benevolent sovereignty. And, and so I can, I can own the... the massive, scary limits of my control without freaking out because the Bible reminds me that my world is under wise and careful control. Yeah. You use that, that beautiful phrase, benevolent sovereignty, and, and that's encouraging. But I think for, for many of us, if we're being honest, there are times in our lives when it doesn't feel that benevolent. We, we, we would maybe intellectually acknowledge that the Bible teaches that God's sovereign over this, and yet we look around at all the suffering that we're experiencing, and when we think, I don't understand how this is loving, I don't understand how this is good, and so it's, it's maybe temp temp tempting in those moments to say, so maybe it's easier just to say that God isn't even controlling this at all. Uh, and I, th I think of the COVID pandemic that we've all been living through, we still continue to, to have to deal with this, and all of the suffering and the pain that has caused, whether physical pain or emotional or social or economic hardship, how does believing in God's total sovereignty over these things, even our suffering, help us to get through that? You, I want to make a statement, then I want to give you an illustration. Sovereignty is a description of what is. This is your world. It's not an explanation of everything that happens. Because if we got that explanation, our minds would melt. Hmm. God knows the limits of what I'm able to take in, what I'm able to carry. Um, and, and I always think of this as a parent. I, ha I had this moment with my son, he was, a, he was a very little boy, and I had to say no to him for something that really upset him, but he was not old enough to understand. And I, so I, I got down to him and I said, I, look, I said, look me in the face. Does your daddy love you? Yeah, daddy loves me. Is he a bad man? No, daddy's not a bad man. Does he want bad things for you? No, he doesn't want bad things for you. Well, daddy has said no. I wish I could explain to you why. 
But if I did, you wouldn't understand it. Now you can walk down the hallway and you can say, my daddy's a bad daddy. He does bad things. I don't like my daddy. Or you can walk down the hallway and say, I don't understand why my daddy said no, but my daddy loves me. My daddy's a good man. I think we're in that position again and again as God's children. Uh, that we, we are confronted with rest is never going to be found in our ability to understand everything. It'll never be found there. In fact, the requirement that I have to understand everything will only ever end in anxiety and fear. And I think for many of us, ultimately a rejection of God. So rest is really found in believing that God is who he described he is and that there's a creature-creator line that I'll just never be able to cross. And if I demand an explanation for everything that happens, I'll never end up resting in a sovereignty. So rest is not found in understanding. Rest is a relationship. It's found in entrusting yourself to the one who understands it all. Mm. That's such a helpful distinction there. Um, it's so helpful to be reminded that believing that God is in control does not is not the same thing as knowing the why of whatever it is that that we're experiencing. I, you know, in in counseling, I had moment after moment where someone would say, well, why is this happening? And I would say my best theological answer is, I don't have a clue. <laughs> but can I talk to you about the one who knows why it's happening, who's in control of it's happening for a moment? Hmm. He's worthy of your trust. And uh, that's what I wanted for my, for my children. Because uh, it, the, the more they allow themselves to demand understanding, the less willing they are to trust me and the greater danger that places them in. This, them in. Listen, trust in God is the safest way to live. Hmm. It, it, absolutely. I mean, and you could argue that the four most important words in the whole Bible are the first four. In the beginning, God. Because if God is on sight, and if this revelation describes accurately who he is, he is infinitely worthy of my trust. Now, he'll confuse me. Because he's God, and I'm not. What, what is it in, in uh, Lie the Witch of the Wardrobe, well, Aslan? Uh, yeah, he's what is it? He's dangerous, but he's good. Yeah, is he safe? Is he I think safe? He asked is he safe? Mr. Beaver, yeah. is he safe? <laughs> yeah, no, he's not safe. But he's but he he's is good. good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, man, that's just that's eloquent. Uh, mm. And uh, I want to say something else. This does not mean stoicism and suffering. The Bible welcomes us to carry our burdens to the Lord. 
The Bible presents suffering as an evil thing, that someday this Lord will end forever. Uh, the Bible never presents grin and bear it Christianity. It surely doesn't endorse uh, masochism where I would just say, masochism where I would just say, bring it on, bring more pain. Uh, it's right to pray for suffering to lift, for hardship to be gone. And the Bible says you pray to a sympathetic, understanding high priest who's walked in our shoes. So uh, again, that's what am I doing? I'm taking all the other things the Bible teaches and I'm trying to hold them together with our discussion of sovereignty. Hmm. Uh, and this touches on a really broad theme that you are getting at in this new book that you've written that, that covers a whole host of doctrines, not just God's sovereignty. And that is that so often for us as Christians, uh, we can have things that we believe, we can have the intellectual understanding and even acceptance of these doctrines, like God's sovereignty, and yet there's sometimes, you call it a gap, between what we say we believe and then how we're, how we're living, and that would include how we're feeling, how we're responding to things that happen in our lives. Uh, I want to read a quote from the book that, that I think captures this really well. Um, you say that your main goal with the book is to help Christians to close the gap between your confessional theology and your, un your functional theology. I, I guess one question there, we probably all can intuitively sense that as a case, is the case for us sometimes. Why do you think it is that we often have so much trouble taking what we believe, what we think we believe at least, and actually letting that affect our lives? Hmm. Uh, my, 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 my quick answer is because confessional spirituality is 500 times easier than actual sacrificial spirituality. It just is. Mm. And it's so easy to uh, name intellectual Christianity as spiritual maturity. In fact, I, I think it's actually one of the tools of the enemy. Uh, I am deeply persuaded that the enemy of our souls will give us our confessional theology if he can control our hearts. Because what controls your heart it, it is actually what has you. Mm. And, and I think it's, it's tempting uh, to... Uh, equate uh, theological knowledge and biblical literacy with spiritual maturity. They are, they are actually two different things. I want to say this as lovingly as I can. I was a seminary professor for 20 years. Uh, many of my students were in a third-year seminary. Uh, these were, by then, theological experts. I counseled ungodly students, uh, harsh, controlling people, uh, guys with broken marriages. Now, they're in the top 97th percentile of theological knowledge. And so I want to I say this to people who will hear this conversation we're having. That gap still exists in my life, too. Sanctification 
is in a lot of ways a process by which God closes the gap between what you say you believe and how you actually live. And what, what confronts us with that process is the truths I actually live are the ones I actually believe. If you want to understand my true theology, watch the video of my life. That's such a sobering, uh, we're all thinking of what that video would look like right now. But it strikes me that one of the most sobering things about that statement is that it's so easy for us to actually be even self-deceived. We, we do, we think that we believe this thing, and we don't even see the gap, perhaps. It's not like there's always an intentional uh, cultivating of that gap. Um, have you ever seen that to be true in your own life? And uh, do you think that's a... A, a part of the challenge that we're facing with this? The, the, being deceived to think that we're... Be, being self-deceived oh, and not even knowing that there's a gap. Absolutely. I, I, I'll give you a, just a, an example in my, in my own life. Uh, so I'm on a Sunday morning. My four children are there with me. We're worshiping. I am caught up at that moment in the theology of God's grace. Uh... I get in the car and my kids start fighting in the back seat and I'm immediately a screaming person of ungrace. Now, not only am I not believing that that God of grace can meet me in that moment and help me to control myself and parent my children in a better way, but I'm also not accepting his call for me to be a tool of that grace. Now, we're talking less than an hour between those two Paul trips. There it is. Now, I would walk out after that service and say, man, that's, that's who I am. I'm a believer in God's yeah. grace. I just celebrated God's grace. And yet, on the way home is a, is a complete contradiction of, of that grace. So... I would, I would challenge people to get up every morning and cry out for help that you would live that day what you have confessed you believe. Mm, yeah. Maybe as a last question, uh, returning to that topic of God's sovereignty, I want to close with uh, one more quote from the book. You write, The theology of God's sovereignty always leads you to Jesus. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, it, we could probably talk about that for 45 minutes. <laughs> but one of the things that that it impresses me is every doctrine, like the doctrine of sovereignty, exposes the darkness of my heart. I want to speak for myself. I struggle with God's control because I want to be in control. I want to rule my life. I don't want anybody to disagree with me. I don't want the lady with 150 items in her grocery cart in the line in front of me. I don't have to wait for traffic. Uh, I don't ever want to be sick. I want my schedule to work every day like I planned it. And 
So I'm, I fight against the authority of God and, and I can run from a situation, I can run from a location, but I can't run from that darkness of my heart. I need a savior who will rescue me and who will begin to empower me to love God's authority more than I love my own. There's a way in which at the deepest level of my spiritual struggle, God's sovereignty makes me weep and say, Father, I wish I didn't want to be king. I wish I celebrated you as king. But today again, I tried to be king. Please forgive me. And tomorrow morning when I get up, help me to worship you as king and not try to be king. And if you track every, every doctrine, it, everyone exposes your heart and everyone leads you to the cross. Well, Paul, thank you so much for helping us to think through this really important foundational doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and, uh, and helping us to, by God's grace, close that gap uh, that we all struggle with. Thanks. Uh, I love these conversations. That was Paul David Tripp on the sovereignty of God. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.